Thanks for listening in to the Calvary Podcast, coming to you from Miami, Florida. We're so glad you've joined us. We hope today's message will encourage you and remind you that God is with you and He's for you. Here's today's message. Hey, I'm taking that back to Tennessee. I love that little shot. I was like, I need another shot of Cuban coffee. If you brought your Bibles, turn to Mark's gospel. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10 this morning. I started studying the gospel of Mark three years ago. I'd studied it in the seminary, but I really didn't remember much except it was short, and I preferred the other three. Because the other three are a little warmer. In Luke, you've got that great birth narrative. In Matthew, you have kind of all the kingdom principles. John, I'm convinced, went to a lot of therapy because he's always talking about relationships and love. But Mark's gospel is short. And I thought, I I don't love his gospel as much as I love the other three. Have y'all ever ever heard uh, of the the context about why we have four gospels? I, I... heard in Sunday school. I, I grew up, my mama was Baptist, daddy was Pentecostal, so I'm kind of Bapticostal. Um, and uh, daddy's church was more fun because we got to wiggle in worship. And so I'm, I'm a little more costal than Baptist now. But anyway, in, in Sunday school, I had a, a teacher who taught us that having four gospels is kind of like having four people watch the same parade from separate street corners. And they all watched the same parade, but if you got all of them together afterwards and you, you asked them to share what they saw in Starbucks, they would all tell a different story. Now, nobody would be telling a tale. They'd just be describing the parade from their particular vantage point. That's what the four Gospels are. You've got four different men writing from basically four different vantage points, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The word Gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. That means the good news. Mark's is the shortest story. And interestingly enough, Mark is the one who who typed out this euangelion, this good news. But do y'all remember who was the narrative voice in the Gospel of Mark? Because remember, all the Gospels are apostolic. That means whoever wrote it had to actually see what went on. They had to have an eyewitness account. So Mark is sitting in the Starbucks, typing on his laptop, drinking Cuban coffee, but somebody's walking back and forth in front of Mark as he types, describing what he had seen with Jesus, describing paralytics doing cartwheels. You know, do you know who the narrative voice of Mark is? It's Peter. Peter is the narrative voice of Mark. And so you'll see this theme of compassion in the gospel of Mark because y'all all know Peter was a hot mess. He threw Jesus under the bus at Jesus' greatest point of need, vehemently and vulgarly denied him three times. But if you study the life of John Mark, he was a southern boy because he had a double name until he got older. So he was John Mark. We call him like Jimmy John. And then they get to high school and go, please just call me John. But John Mark was also a hot mess because John Mark is the very one who broke up the gospel duo of Paul and Barnabas years later. It was over the issue of John Mark in the book of Acts that they parted ways. So I always think of, of Barnabas and Paul kind of like the gospel Beatles. So John Mark was the original Yoko Ono. And then in Mark chapter 14, we see John Mark betrayed Jesus right after Peter did. Only John Mark went a step further and he betrayed him buck naked. Because he's described in verse 51 of Mark 14 as the one who dropped his cloak and ran away out 
outside the Garden of Gethsemane. So you've got two guys who have massive train wrecks in their history. These are not perfect kind of guys. Most of us would say these are not spiritual leadership material. I mean, these guys need a whole lot more mentoring. But Jesus restored them. I love that our God is prone to use broken people. He restored them. As a matter of fact, my favorite prayer request was the one that said, I'm starting as a a co-leader of Celebrate Recovery. And so whoever you are, boy, I applaud you because those who have been forgiven much love much. And these two men who wrote this short gospel account that I, I now say is my favorite of the gospel, these two men knew what it was to be desperate for the redemption of Jesus Christ. And this story is one of my favorite stories they tell. It begins in chapter 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he, as he, and they're talking about Jesus here, as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. Now, if you're comfortable writing in your Bibles, I want you to underscore son of David, and then I want you to underscore rebuked. Many rebuked him, telling him um, to, to be silent, but he cried out, all the more. I want you to underline all the more. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, come up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, came to Jesus, and Jesus said to Bartimaeus, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Some translations say along the way. So to set this story up, We've got Jesus, and he, this is a real significant point, chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, because it marks kind of a different motion that Jesus is taking. The first part of Mark's gospel is all about the compassion of the Christ. And the word there in the Greek is splognizomai, when it says, oh, Jesus had compassion for the leper. He didn't look at lepers and go, bummer, dude needs a good dermatologist. That's not the kind of compassion he had. Splognizomai, when it says Jesus was moved with compassion, splognizomai is the word we get our word spleen from. It means from the guts of Christ. So the compassion of God, it is deeper than you and I even dare to dream most days. The whole first part of Mark's gospel, his good news, his euangelion, it's all about that deep gut level compassion that Jesus has for us. I don't know about y'all, but at the beginning of the year, January, there's two things I always want to go back to in my walk of faith. One is the compassion of Christ. I want to remember how kind he has been to me. I love to look back over the last year and go, oh, he was merciful. Oh, he was merciful. Oh, he was merciful. The compassion of Christ. The second thing I, I try to do every January is to remember my calling. In light of the compassion God has lavished on me, What is my calling? Where am I supposed to move in light of what I have received? First half of Mark's gospel is all about compassion. Second half, and the turn is right here. The second half is all about the motion Jesus took to move toward Calvary. Most theologians call it the, the compassion of the Christ. They call the second half of Mark's gospel the passion of the Christ. 
And of course, we're not talking about hyped up emotional feelings when we say passion. In the biblical context, we're talking about the fact that Jesus was resolute about the cross. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew exactly what was going to take place. He knew that he was going to be set up on trumped up charges. He knew he was going to walk up the Via Della Rosa. He knew he was going to stretch out his arms on Roman crossbars. He knew they were going to drive nails into his wrist and his feet. And he knew he was going to have to press up on his feet for breath. He knew the breath he would get would come from Gehenna, which is adjacent to Golgotha. If you ever had the chance to go to literal Israel, that's the trash dump where they burn trash continuously. That's why we think of hell as always having fire. Because in the New Testament, the Greek word we use for hell is Gehenna. And Gehenna was a town trash dump. They turned it into a trash dump because they were embarrassed that that's where Solomon had let his wives perform child sacrifice. So every time Jesus is on that hill in Golgotha and he gets a little bit of air by pressing up on the stakes in his ankles and his feet, the air he breathes in is acrid smoke coming from the town trash dump. That's why Hebrews says he suffered a humiliating death outside the city. He took our shame outside the city so that you and I don't have to deal with that. So compassion, first half of Mark, second half of Mark, passion. The resoluteness of Jesus that they're worth it to me. They are worth dying this degradating, get degradating, humiliating death. And right there, between compassion and him turning toward the cross, we've got this story in Jericho. Now I want you all to stop and think of the context. Jesus knows where he's going. He knows he's going to his own murder. He knows that. This is his very last pit stop. Now, if you're going to take your very last pit stop, you had one Saturday, Saturday night, before you're headed to your own gruesome murder, what would y'all do? I mean, I'd be getting like a, a massive massage. I'd be like, I don't want just two or three. I want like 10 massage therapists rubbing up on me. And I'm going to go to Starbucks, and I'm going to get like five Frappuccinos. I'm not going to worry about the sugar and the carbs. I'm going to have fettuccine Alfredo and lobster tempura. I mean, and Cuban coffee. I mean, I'm just going to live it up because I'm going to be like, this is my last time to have some me time before I get murdered. Well, aren't you going to tell me? Of course, I'm going to call everybody I love. Mo, we're right there together. I'm single. Um, 54. Too old for you, brother. Plus, I don't know, you look sweet. I don't think you could handle these leather pants, but anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, I always, I always tease and say my husband is lost and won't stop to ask for directions. But if I have that last moment before I know I'm facing the end, I'm gonna live it up, right? So it would make sense when we see Jesus at the turn right before he heads for the cross. It would make sense if Jesus said, hey, guys, I need a little alone time. I, I actually want to stay in a really nice hotel, and I'm going to order a filet and, and a, a really nice red, and I'm just going to have a massage and chill because this is my last alone time. Wouldn't that make human sense? Instead, he walks through the people. In Jericho, and at this point of Jesus' ministry, a lot of people recognized him. He was all over JNN, the Jerusalem News Network. They heard that Jesus was doing incredible things. People weren't, a lot of people weren't putting their hope in him as Messiah, but they thought he was very, very interesting. 
So wherever he went, crowds would form because they wanted to see what trick he was going to perform next. They wanted to see if he would heal somebody. So a crowd has formed there in Jericho. Jesus is passing through. And as he passes through, we've got a blind man. And remember in John's gospel, even the disciples assumed that a man who was blind had unconfessed sin in his life. Because in Jewish culture, it was assumed if you had an ongoing medical illness that you had unconfessed sin. Even the disciples said, who sinned, this blind guy or his parents? In John's gospel, they weren't talking about Bartimaeus. They are talking about another blind man. So blind people, anybody with an overt medical condition was the lowest on the totem pole in Jewish culture at this point in history. So this guy is relegated to the very back of the crowd. John Mark and and Pete tell us he's sitting on the curb and he hears, he doesn't see, he can't see, he hears Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And when he hears that, he's like, oh man, I've heard people talk about Jesus of Nazareth. I've heard them say he is the son of God. If there's any hope for me to be healed, it lies in that man. And he begins to holler, son of David, have mercy on me. Y'all, it's significant that he calls Jesus son of David there because he knows based on Torah, based on prophecies, they said Jesus would come from the lineage of David. So that's basically his profession of faith. He's not saying, I think you're a a cool healer. I bet you you're going to get on Oprah one day. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I believe you are the Messiah. And I believe you could heal me. And after he starts hollering, the people of faith, many of them, gathered around him. They support him and they push him to the front, right? No. No, they don't. The religious people around Bartimaeus go, Bartimaeus, hush, shut up, Bartimaeus. It says they told him to be quiet. I told you to underline where it says, and many rebuked him in verse 48. The word rebuke in Greek, and Greek is the original language that the New Testament was written in, Greek and Aramaic. In the original Greek text, rebuke comes from the word epitomio. And epitomio means to command with the implication of a threat. How many parents or grandparents or aunties or uncles in the house this morning? Okay, y'all have all epitomized because here's when you do it. If you're driving to church and you've got a back seat full of beautiful, just little miraculous pumpkins and they begin fussing and you're trying to focus on church, then you usually go, y'all better hush or I'm going to hush you up. Have y'all ever done that? Have you ever aimed the rearview mirror so you can hit their knee? That's epitomized. Epitomio is to command, to command with the implication of a, of a threat. Honey, if you don't hush, I will hush you up. So that's what the crowd is saying to Bartimaeus. They're saying, Bartimaeus, good night. People already think Jericho is a redneck city. I mean, we're not Jerusalem, you know? We don't have all the cool design center and the beach where nobody wears any clothes. I mean, that's not us. I mean, we're out here in Kendall, you know, and we've got Cuban coffee, but we're not all, you know, highfalutin. That's basically what they're saying. Bartimaeus, don't humiliate us any further. Just hush. This is embarrassing that we've got you in our crowd anyway, because you're sick. You're less than. 
your social cripple. We wish you'd stayed home. Hush or we will hush you up. Again, remember the context. Jesus is on his way to Easter. And this man's fussing. After they go, hush, what just so encourages me in this passage and so convicts me in this passage is it says Bartimaeus doesn't hush. Bartimaeus cries out all the more. I started the adoption process when I was 40 years old. Gone to a women's conference, and in that conference, one of the breakout sessions, I thought it was on missions, and the woman started talking about adoption. And she said there are 147 million orphans in the world as we know it today, many of whom will die from very preventable diseases like malaria or not having access to clean water. And then she quoted a verse from James that most of you know where it talks about as Christ followers, we're supposed to take care of widows and orphans. After she quoted that verse, she paused for a second. I'll never forget this. I'm 54. This was 14 years ago. She stared out over the audience and she said, what are you doing about it? Now, I remember I was sitting in the back of that conference room, this breakout session, and I just thought, I, 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 I didn't know I could do anything about it. I mean, I'm single. You know, what can a single woman with chemically dependent hair and a slow metabolism, you know, what can I do? with regards to adoption and I thought you know maybe the Lord is stirring my spirit because I'm just supposed to volunteer for an orphanage or maybe I need to to give more sacrificially to that effort and I I came back to my church and I thought you know I'm not going to tell the whole church because I know y'all don't do this here at Calvary but where I'm from in Nashville Tennessee sometimes women disguise um, prayer request at gossip as prayer request And, you know, they'll be like, oh, let me tell you what Lisa said so we can pray. And so I thought, I'm not going to tell all the girls in church. I'm just going to tell my small group. I'm just going to tell my connect group, these women I've been running toward Jesus with. And so I said, y'all, I don't know what God wants me to do, but I just can't shake this stirring that started when this girl started talking about adoption. And then as believers, we should be involved in some way. And I, I don't know what he's asking me to do, I just feel like God is really stirring my spirit. So will you pray with me? Will you pray for me that I'll have the wisdom to be very wise about the next steps God has for me? Because I'm not sure exactly where he's leading, but he, he's, he's wanting me to do something. Have y'all ever been there? Maybe Pastor Alex started preaching on something, and you're like, he has been reading my emails. Because he preaches on something that just stirs you and you go, I don't know exactly how I'm supposed to walk this out, but I know God got my attention with that. And three of the girls in my small group basically said, we are for you. We've got your back. We are for you. And one of them said, "Um, Lisa, if you have time later on this week, I'd really love to meet you for coffee and process this further. How many of y'all are under 40 in the house this morning? Um, This is free. This has nothing more to do with this morning's message. But if a really unkind gentleman or a lady who doesn't smile very often, the ladies usually have Vera Bradley Bible covers, if they say they need to meet you in private because they have a word for you, y'all need to play dumb and take a friend. You just trust me on this one. But I have never been the sharpest tool in the shed, so I met that woman by myself. After a few minutes of small talk, she said, Lisa, I just need to be real straight up with you. She said, I do not think you're a good candidate for motherhood. 
She said, I don't know if that's the direction you feel like God is prompting you, but she said, you have shared with our small group that you were sexually molested when you were younger. And she said, I know you went through all kinds of abuse when you were younger. And she said, I also know you've been to a lot of Christian counseling, but just in case you weren't fixed, you might unwittingly transfer some of the trauma you experienced as a, as a child onto a child of your own. And she said, so I do not think you're a good candidate for motherhood. She said, here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to the Nashville Humane Society, and I think you should adopt a pet because you're really good with animals. Now, y'all, at that time I was 40 years old. I came to know Jesus in a church very similar to this when I was five. I walked an aisle when I was five years old. I got baptized twice just in case the first one didn't take. And so I've known Jesus since I was itty-bitty. That doesn't mean I always walk straight toward him. I've certainly had prodigal seasons, seasons of stumbling. But when I look back over my life, I can promise you I've never seen his back. God has always been faithful to me. And so as a 40-year-old, as a 40-year-old follower of Christ, I should have had the wisdom to go, you know what, this, this woman is a crooked little tree. Somewhere in her backstory, she experienced such a serious drought or such a furious storm that it bent her trunk. And so now she's not bearing good fruit. What she's saying is not congruent with God's word because God will never, ever, ever, ever say, you're not good enough. You're not good enough for this tech. Never, never. God does not use shame as a disciplinary style. That's not how he works. He might say, no, baby, this isn't your calling, or I've got something else for you that for you is better, but he'll never say you're not good enough for this. I should have recognized that as a 40-year-old follower of Christ, but y'all, here's the deal. We do ourselves such, such a disservice when we caricaturize Satan and we put him in a Beyonce onesie with horns. That is not who he is. He is not a cartoon character. He is a carnivorous predator. And he is prowling, looking to see who he can devour or discourage. If you're in Christ, Scripture says nothing, not even death, can snatch you from God's hand. So if you're a believer, the enemy cannot take away your salvation. But let me tell you, he can oppress you to the point that you will be no good for the kingdom of God. And you will feel like you're just no good, period. So what the enemy did that day is he took just a kernel of truth, and this is how he almost always throws us, a kernel of truth. He wove it into poison, and because it sounded a little plausible, I drank it. When she said, you're damaged, I thought, oh, goodness, what, what if I am? Because that's, that's my Achilles heel. That past where I was abused, I think, oh, golly, what if... What if I am too damaged or too dirty to be a good mama? That's what he does, y'all. The devil never comes at me with lies like, Lisa, you're, you're such an introvert with such a high metabolism. If he said that, I'd be like, lizard, lizard, here he comes, liar, liar, pants on fire. I'd see him coming. That's not how he throws us, y'all. And here's the deal, and, and forgive me if I step on any toes here, but he doesn't always use pagans either. Sometimes well-intentioned but immature followers of Christ are used as tools by the enemy. Sometimes it's the followers of Christ who cause the most division in the body of Christ because they're in a season of, of 
either a lack of repentance or disobedience. And they think they're speaking truth. And really what they're, they're doing is causing division being used as a tool by the enemy. That woman thought she was being straight with me. She didn't realize it was her own baggage that was causing her to speak words of death to me. You know what I did after that conversation? I went back to my office. I took the adoption application that I just received. And I put it at the very back of my file drawer. And then the next day when I got off work, I drove to the Nashville Humane Society. And I adopted a chocolate lab named Sally with bladder control problems. And she was a sweet dog. She was not God's will for me that season. Do you know it was seven more years? Seven years before I was brave enough to stick my toe back in the adoption pond. Y'all, sometimes even followers of Christ can kill the motion that the Holy Spirit has prompted. Sometimes you'll be here at Calvary, you'll hear a sermon, you'll go, I know exactly where God wants me to walk. And your mama or your sister or your best friend or your co-worker will go, mm, is that really what God said? Are you sure? Because, I mean, you know, I mean, I know you. I know what you were doing two years ago, five years ago, two weeks ago. And you'll go, oh, yeah, what was I thinking? And you'll back up from God's best. You'll stop moving in the direction God prompted you to move in because someone you trusted speaks words of death. Y'all don't ever, ever assume that any word that falls out of the mouth of a man or a woman is perfect, is inerrant. When you filter the mind of God through the mind and the mouth of men and women, it will absolutely be distorted at some level. I don't care how great the pastor is you're listening to, even Pastor Alex would say this. No matter how great the pastor is, no matter how great the preacher is, no matter how great the teacher is, no matter how great the author is or the blogger is, you better take every word they say and take it back to the inerrant word of God. And you better go, would Jesus say this? Does that hold up to the perfect counsel of God? Otherwise, your motion, it will become paralysis before you're two or three steps into it. I love that Bartimaeus was so much more mature than I was. Because when people said, hush, you better hush before I hush you up, it says he cried out all the more, all the more. And that's the fresh word some of y'all needed this morning, all the more. Don't stop. Baby, whatever God began to stir in you when this series started on motion, whatever God started stirring, don't stop. You cry out all the more. If you've had a little bit of negativity the last week or two, you just go, you know what, Lord, I'm following your voice. I'm following your voice, I'm following your word. Even well-intentioned voices in my home. Even, do you know how many people told me not to adopt Missy? Because the doctors in Haiti said she won't live more than two months. My own precious mama who loves Jesus said, Lisa, there's a whole lot of kids here in America who don't have HIV. A whole lot of kids in America who aren't dying. Honey, are you sure? That's my mama who loves Jesus who now adores her granddaughter. But initially, my mama said, I don't know that that's such a good idea. His voice has got to be the loudest voice in your heart and mine. Bartimaeus said, I want Jesus. He cried out all the more. Remember where Jesus is going. He's headed to the cross. This guy's hollering. Guy he's never met before. Guy who's the lowest man on the totem pole. 
basically an insignificant bit player in that city. Jesus is headed toward the most important act in human history, the cross. He's headed that way. Have you ever been just just heck bent on getting somewhere? You're, you're focused and somebody messes with your focus. Don't you want to punch them in the throat? You say, I'm heading towards something important. Shh, quit bugging me. You are distracting me. I'm trying really, really hard to get my hair just right. Hush. It's important. This fellow's screaming, Jesus is headed toward Easter. And how does Jesus respond? Would y'all please hush him up? Somebody get his email. Tell him to go to WWJD in in a month or two. Somebody will get back to him. You tell him we're busy right now. No. Jesus says, call him. He stops. Do you realize what happens here, y'all? He puts Easter on pause. For one person, nobody else will give the time of day. Jesus puts Easter on pause and says, call him. Bring him to me. Imagine how convicted that crowd was when they told him to shut up and Jesus says, bring him to me. They bring Bartimaeus to the Christ. And Jesus says to Bartimaeus what he says to us all the time through his spirit. What can I do for you? What do you need? And the Bible says where two or three are gathered together, Jesus is here in our midst. We can't see him. He's here present through his spirit. But can you imagine if we could see him this morning? If we could see the Christ this morning, and he was standing up here in a white robe, According to the book of Numbers, because Jesus was Jewish, there'd be blue tassels on the corner of his robes. He'd be wearing Birkenstocks. He wouldn't have blonde hair like he's depicted in the paintings, the German paintings. He would look more Latin. He's Jewish. He'd have probably curly, dark hair, brown skin, olive skin. And if he looked at you and he made eye contact with you, and we'd all think he was making eye contact with us because he's omnipresent. He looked at you with compassion like you've never seen before. And he said, what can I do for you? Can you imagine that? What would you say? What would you say? Oh, don't worry about it. I told him to cause scene right there, so I knew I only had five minutes left. What would you say if he said, what can I do for you? How would you respond? Bartimaeus said, Jesus, I want to see my boy around third. I've heard his back connect with the ball a million times. But I've never seen my boy score. And I'd love to be able to see my boy score. Jesus, I want to see my wife smile again. You know, that's how I fell in love with her. I was sitting in a coffee shop. She came in the door. I heard the bell jingle and I looked over at the door and our eyes met and I thought, that is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. Her smile captured my heart. But I lost my sight just a few years after we got married and I haven't seen her smile, Jesus, in more than a decade. I'd love to see my wife smile again. Jesus, I'd love to have my sight restored. And in that moment, just like that, immediately, Jesus spoke his healing into existence. And blind Bart all of a sudden wasn't blind anymore. He could see 
And that could be the end of that story, and it would make it a, a fabulous story. But that's not the end of the story. As a matter of fact, I don't even think that's the best part of the story. I don't think the best part of the story is Bartimaeus's physical healing. I believe the best part of the story is his physical posture. Because he went from sitting on the curb, basically totally checked out, ostracized, dismissed, insignificant, paralyzed by fear and shame. Everybody else told him he didn't matter and he had started to believe it. And then he engages with the Messiah. Jesus gives him his sight back, which is incredible. But what's really incredible is he, he gains spiritual sight. Because it says he, he jumped up and he followed Jesus along the way. You remember where Jesus is going. Jesus is going to the cross. Do you know that New Testament historians count Bartimaeus among that very small crowd that sat at the foot of the cross that included John and Jesus' mama, Mary? Bartimaeus was there. Do you know they count Bartimaeus among that small group of 100 followers of Christ in the book of Acts who founded the very first Christian church? Do you know that before we were called Christians, we were called followers of the way. Followers of the way. So you and I stand now on the shoulders of just a few men and women like Bartimaeus who said, I'm going to move in the direction God has called me because everything I hope, everything I believe lies in the Messiah. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care. I'm following him. And I ask Pastor, Pastor Alex and Pastor Diana to the stage right now because I feel in my spirit that some of y'all are at that same crossroads. You've experienced some compassion. You've experienced some connection. You begin to think, you know, I, I think I'll keep going there on Sundays. I mean, I kind of feel like I, I fit in that place. You've experienced kind of the edge of his robe, if you will. And Jesus is saying, baby, I want, you, I want you all in. I want you to follow me along the way. I want to change your whole life. I don't want to just change your Sundays. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long, long time. And he's saying, now is the time for you to move toward real leadership. Now is the time for you to become a pastor in the house of God. Now is the time for you to become a mother in the family of God. Now is the time for you to assume the mantle of blessing and authority that I plan to put on your shoulders before the beginning of time. I want to ask God to bow your heads and close your eyes as pastors Alex and Diana come up. And if I can be so bold, um, and so bossy. I want to ask you to close your eyes out of respect for the friends who've joined us this morning who don't normally come to Calvary on a Sunday. We're not going to embarrass you or humiliate you in any way. We just want to talk frankly with you. We want to assure you we're not going to have you stand up or come forward. This is not about manipulation or threatening. This is about you having a personal, honest encounter with the one living, true God. If you're on the right-hand side of the sanctuary and the cry of your heart is to have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, 
I mean, maybe you know a lot about God. Maybe you're raised in a, a religious family. Maybe you're raised in a Catholic family and you have some, some wonderful imagery at home. Maybe you're a priester and you go to church every Christmas and every Easter. But you haven't come to that point. You haven't moved to the point of saying, Jesus, I can't make it by myself. I don't care what anybody else says. I need you. I, I, I need you. I, I want to be free. I want to be forgiven. I want to be loved with a love that will never let me go. If that's the cry of your heart, you're on the left-hand side of the room this morning. Would you just real quickly raise your right or your left hand? Alex and Diana and I are the only ones with our eyes open. You're in a real relationship with Jesus. Maybe you came to Christ when you were a kid, but you've been running for decades, trying to clean yourself up. Raise your right or your left hand. Middle of the room, you want to see you. Welcome to the family. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the family. Anybody else? Center of the room. We see you. We see you. Left-hand side of the room. Raise your hand. You want a real relationship with Jesus Christ. You're ready to be forgiven and set free. We see you. Only God knows. Best I can tell, there are seven beautiful men and, I mean, women and very brave men who've raised their hands this morning and said, Pastor Alex is going to pray what's commonly called a sinner's prayer with y'all. Y'all, this isn't a magic bullet. This is not a good luck charm. This is a practical application of a promise in Romans that says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God, as Bart said, He's the Son of David, comes through the lineage of David. If you believe Jesus is the Messiah, you confess that with your mouth and you believe that with your heart, then you will be saved this very morning in January at Calvary Church. Instead of having these seven or eight pray with Pastor Alex, I'm going to encourage this whole body, this whole family to follow Pastor Alex in prayer. If you already know Jesus, you're not getting saved again. You're just affirming them, kind of coming behind them and cheering. And you're reminding yourself of what a miracle it was that he called you son or daughter prior to this Sunday. So would y'all please join Pastor Alex? Come on, all of us with our eyes closed. Let's say this out loud. I really believe that God is in this room right now. All of you who raise your hand, the Bible says if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. As a family together, as Lisa just told us, can we repeat together? Can we say, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity. I admit that I'm a sinner and that I need you. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God, that you died for my sins, and on the third day, you resurrected. Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. From today on, I am forgiven, I am saved. And I am healed. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, church. Can we celebrate? Can we give them a big Calvary hand? Come on. We hope today's message has encouraged you. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel or visit us at calvaryconnect.com for more information. Till next time.